Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. It came time for me to be promoted. General counsel said, I'm not putting you up. I'm only putting Mr. up. I said, why? You have a working husband. He has a stay-at-home wife. He has four kids. You only have two. He really needs this. You don't. And for the first time in my life, I did something about it. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. My guest today is Florence Davis, a 1979, I'm not rubbing it in Florence, graduate of NYU Law and president of the Star Foundation. I am really pleased and honored to welcome Florence to the conversation today to talk about, among other things, communication tactics. And because this podcast is oriented around women, I always like to start with this. What was your experience as a law student and then as a young lawyer, particularly how being a woman impacted those experiences? Well, you can't rub in the class of 79, Jeannie, because my daughter, my baby, turned 30 yesterday, and she's also mm-hmm. a graduate of the law school. So class of 79 is just math, but I now have a 30-year-old daughter, and that feels like more than math. Yeah, that's when things are getting real. Yeah. I mean, I don't have teenagers. I don't have 20-somethings anymore. I have adults. Well, I'm in the same game with you. Mm. Okay, so being a law student and being a young lawyer... I was at a woman's college, and I don't remember feeling a huge culture shift coming from an all-woman's institution to NYU Law, because I was surrounded by smart, ambitious, self-assured women at both places, and I felt that there was community both places. So coming to the law school was not in terms of my gender, a big culture shift. It was intellectually, it turns out, a huge shift, and one for which I was not prepared for a variety of reasons that had nothing to do with NYU Law School. But in terms of being a woman at the school, it was not an issue. My class must have been 40% women, I'm guessing. Whereas my husband, who was at Harvard Law School, his class, same class of 79, was about 20% women. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a very different experience for his classmates at Harvard. It was also just a less happy experience for Harvard Law School students in general. I thought NYU was a, a very supportive, wonderful mix of people gender, not an issue. Where it started to be uh, an issue that I had to think about was in job searches. I was a Root Tilden, and so my first summer job was really taken care of within the Root network. And it never occurred to me that there was an issue for women in the public service network, and I didn't experience it then. Starting to interview at big law firms was a different story. And of course, the question will occur to many people listening to this, why was Ruth Tilden introducing for corporate law positions? 
<laughs> and it's because in those days, I have to say, our placement office really didn't know what to do with public service students. And I wasn't quite sure what public service I wanted to go into. And I had a great corporations professor second year, and I ended up interviewing at law firms. That was a very different picture. There were law firms that were under a consent decree for not hiring women or for discriminating against women. Wow. There were law firms that were desperately trying to hire women. There were law firms where they really wanted to hire women, but the partners didn't quite get it. And they would do things, I think, quite unwittingly that would annoy an entire law school and get them on the bad list for years of recruiting. So navigating that was was interesting. Just how to make make decisions about which one to go to? Yes. I mean, I, I think I, at the beginning of my annoying, appallingly blunt personality probably was, if it wasn't genetic, it was certainly fed during that period. There were a lot of <laughs> law firms that were under this consent decree. And my memory is not good anymore. I think it was something brought by people at Columbia Law School. I may be wrong. And so I, I had offers from some of these law firms, and I turned down offers from law firms who were under the consent decree, deliberately. Wisely. I thought so at the time. I still do. And I got a call from one of the women, I think at Columbia, whose job it was to follow up on women who had tried to get a job at these law firms and either succeeded or didn't and why they accepted or didn't accept. And she called me and I, I said, well, I have to tell you that I think being a young associate is going to be hard enough. Mm-hmm. By this time, I had realized that I was not going to be the best and the brightest at law school, which was a blow to my ego and my uh, presumed talents and self-presumed talents. <laughs> and I had a sense that life in law firms was going to be nasty, brutish, and overtime. And I said, I think I have enough hurdles to leap over without people thinking that I'm an affirmative action case. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, you would have thought that I had called her by some name that I would have had my mouth washed out for at home. She was sputtering with anger that mm. I would say this. But I really felt that, and to a certain extent still do, that you put the striver in a position where there's an assumption against his or her talent based on whatever special attribute that person has, and I just didn't want to deal with it. So I turned them down. Other problems, I ended up at a law firm that had, I think there were zero women partners when Mm -hmm. I got there. Maybe there were one or two. And in some ways, even the women who I remember making partner early on were in, this sounds harsh, but in some ways denatured. They didn't have children. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they were married, they were the dominant breadwinner. Mm -hmm. So one didn't see clearly the pathway. Now, my class at that law firm, which was all of 20 people, that was a big class in those days, was 40% women. So I was no pioneer, but it was still 
after four years, you started to see the ranks then, and that was tough. So such a question as work-life balance was never um, raised. To the extent that it was raised, there were really very few solutions. Mm-hmm. I found after I, I did have a child in my fifth year at the law firm, and the quality of work that I got when I got back was just not the same. Mm-hmm. And I have to be fair to the law firm. It could be that I wasn't getting the same kind of work because they said, oh, she's a mom with a kid and she's not going to be able to hack this case or she's going to be distracted or she won't want to work nights. That could have been it. It also could have been that my work quality went down because I was conflicted. Mm -hmm. I, uh, some of the stuff that you have to do at law firms is fine as long as it, you don't have something that really means much more to you. And I think by then I was kind of burned out on the civil litigation stuff. We just took a really deep dive into something that I didn't really anticipate, but that is this notion that it's hard to be focused in that exclusively focused way that law firms demand and still have multiple focuses. I mean, foci, do you say? But there, there's a lot of social research that show that women have multiple aspirations, and it's hard to hold that single focus uh, that law firms demand. Well, and, and when I left the law firm, which I probably should have done a year or two earlier in hindsight, but okay, hindsight is twenty twenty. a couple of the younger male litigation partners came in and said, oh, this is terrible. If you can't do this balance, then nobody can. And I said, you know, you don't owe it to me to make these choices perfectly easy. You, as a law firm, have a decision to make. At that point, there was no of counsel. There were no permanent associates. There was no such thing as being a part-time lawyer. Mm -hmm. Those all evolved later. So I, my choice, at least in my perception, was binary. You either made partner or you didn't. You either worked full-time toward that goal or you didn't work there at all. And I said, you don't owe me that, but if you want people like me to make partner, then something's got to give. The structure's got to change. And that's a decision you have to make. I am voting with my feet via condios. It's been a great six I'm years. Out of here. <laughs> I'm out of here. And I went in-house mm -hmm. for what I thought was nine to five. That was a joke, too. Okay. There is no nine to five job for professionals. It doesn't and work that way. many women of our generation did exactly that, voted with our feet. Yes. And, and interestingly enough, my late husband was a partner at a major law firm on Wall Street for many, many years. And after he'd retired, what they, he was noticing at his law firm was that women, because of the supportive structure of that law firm, which is a terrific place for women, they were making partner. They were sticking it out, and they were being promoted to partner. And then after three or four years, they were leaving the partnership, which to him was inexplicable. He loved being a partner there. And I just think, I don't know whether it's nature or nurture, or social expectations, or hardwired in our DNA. And frankly, I don't care. Somebody will figure it out eventually. But women think differently about parenting than men, for the most part. My first marriage 
with whom my, uh, my husband and I had two children, and during their early years, uh, he was as besotted and dedicated to those daughters as I was. But he did not wake up at three in the morning thinking to himself, I am really messing this up. I can't do this. My children are neglected. They're not going to love me. He never woke up with those very fundamental doubts. Mm-hmm. It's not that he didn't love them. It's not that he didn't care. Somehow it was my head that was upset at three in the morning, not his. And I don't know either if that's genetic or if that's some um, ironic twist of fate. I have no idea. And I was raised by, my father died young, so I was raised by a single working mother. She had to work. But there you go. But there you go. You were the one waking up at three in the morning. I was. And I think that's, you have to acknowledge your feelings and make decisions based on that, regardless of what everyone else's expectations are. It takes a while to understand that, but I now know everything, and I will give everyone unsolicited advice. (laughs) The crazy old lady. Now that you know everything. Now that I know everything. Well, now that you know everything, I have to tell you that um, I know you on the other side of this, now that you've got the, you know, you're in the, the third decade of being a parent. Um, And if I had to choose a career for you off the top of my head, I would probably think that you'd end up on the stand-up stage rather than, you know, or at least a writer for Stephen Colbert or something. I wouldn't have thought, looking back, that you'd have ended up as as a lawyer. Not that there's anything wrong with being a lawyer. Um, But it strikes me that the legal profession isn't so full of funny guys. And I do know that women of our age end up at three in the morning worrying about their kids. So what made you want to go to law school? Oh, I was going to be the first woman senator from Massachusetts, ah. who turned out to be Elizabeth Warren, I believe. But that I was going into Bless politics. Yes, I, and uh, I was going to be the first woman senator. I was going to Washington. Uh, my mother had been a political science professor and was politically active, and I was going to be like my mother, who still works, and I still adore her. And I was going to save the world. I came of age during Vietnam and then Watergate, and I was going to do something to change the world. What is it? Man plans and God laughs. It applies to women, too. It does. A lot of serendipity. A lot of serendipity. Pasteur is sometimes quoted as having said, chance favors the prepared mind. It's actually something different in French, but I like that. (laughs) And it's true. And so these plans just took you to law school. They took me to law school. They got me a root Tilden, and then I ended up on Wall Street. And let me assure everyone, I have repaid my scholarship many times over, but I didn't think I was going to end up on Wall Street for as long as I did. Well, let me go back to this idea that you had talked about, and this goes back to the, the keeping awake at three in the morning worrying about your kids. And it has to do with this this notion of fight or flight and the idea that men do it differently. Or, you know, that, you're, that your former husband loved and adored his daughters, but didn't seem to wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat of self-doubt. And you did. Walter Cannon's research on fight or flight was done in the 30s. And our beloved colleague, Carol Gilligan, asked, I think, in the 80s, she said, where are the women on on this social research? And that research was all done on men. And 
you know, now there's research, uh, social research. Shelley Taylor out of Stanford has recently done research on um, women. And she says women under pressure tend to, instead of uh, fight or flight, uh, she says they don't respond in the same way that men do, typically. They tend or befriend under pressure. And so I'm wondering, I mean, that smacks a little bit of what you're saying, that they use humor and conciliation and worry. How does this fit with what you see in the workplace? I do think men and women are very different in the workplace. And if that's, um, if that's heresy, then um, somebody can burn me at the stake, but they have to catch me. Yeah, run. I mean, I, I was an early reader of Deborah Tannen's books, and I didn't like the pop culture about it. Mm-hmm. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, blah. Well, I think very often what happens is this stuff gets overgeneralized. And popularized in ways. Mm-hmm. But if you, when I pray, uh, I these days, I pray for nuance. And mm-hmm. it, it's not binary. It's not black or white. And if a certain series of books weren't so popular now, I would say that I've learned to see shades of gray. But that, that now gets us <laughs> into all... Don't go there. Don't no, go no, there. I can't go there. I can't go there. And it's too bad. It's like the word sad has been banished from my vocabulary. Exactly. <laughs> Used to use it a lot. I think men and women are very different. On Tannen's continuums, I tend to be more affiliative. I'd rather work in a team. I don't care if I'm the boss. And I have probably learning about management and leadership as I went through my professional career have tended to befriend more than was good for a manager. Okay. I'm not hierarchical. I don't insist on one up, one down. On the other hand, I'm pretty close to Tannen's male end of the continuum in that um, I, I think she said that men tend when somebody presents them with a problem to offer solutions right away, whereas women share another, that they've had the same problem. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I tend more towards offering solutions. And I watch myself doing it, and I'm highly amused. Where Tannen's work helped me, and it's not just in men and women in the workplace, I, at one point in my career, spent a lot of time in Japan which is a very strange culture for a, an aggressive, outspoken New York woman. And it wasn't men bad, women good, mm-hmm. or Japanese crazy, do it the Western way. I had to deal with these people. I had to manage them. I had to cooperate with them. I had to, some of them were my superiors at the firm. And I just started to think about things as, I don't get it, but I've had to learn how to navigate in Tokyo, and I think I can learn how to navigate with men. Well, so I did. Yeah. And I tried not to offend the Japanese any more than my inadvertence would, would cause. But there were times when I was in Japan when I realized I, I was running compliance at that point, which didn't make me popular anywhere. And I would realize that I'd honed in on exactly the heart of a bad situation when I would be in a discussion with a Japanese employee and there would be this sharp intake of breath. And I knew it was like touching somebody's bad bruise. And it was very improper of me to be that direct and push my thumb on that bruise, but that was my job. To be that overt. And direct on something that they would rather not talk about. 
So there's different styles of being. And I mean, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was humor as a way to kind of take care of sexism problems in the workplace. Um, one of the things that Deborah Tannen talks about is that women, again, tend to not to stereotype us forever, um, but we tend to have high involvement conversational style. Um, and that is just to be that we the, we punctuate things with lots of interjections, questions. I say we just interrupt more often, which is a little counter to the male approach of holding forth. Um, sometimes when I run little workshops on fundraising, I say to my male co colleagues, aerate the conversation a little, allow for a little more room. So mansplaining, how do you deal with mansplaining in the workplace? It sounds like directness is one, one way to tackle it, is to put your finger on the bruise. I use a lot of humor, as you know, and I've often wondered why, because some of it, there are occasions when I really do go too far. I, I do go too far, and, and I realize it afterwards, and I, and I kick myself. Uh, you can't see the bruises because I'm wearing clothes. Some of it is, uh, if you look at any successful comedian, uh, a lot of them are very angry people. So mm -hmm. I think some of my humor is out of anger, wherever that comes from. And some of it is, I know I come across very strong. I came from a family of tough women. I toughened up quickly in college and law school. And I think sometimes it's scary, particularly for younger women on my staff. So I use a lot of humor, a lot of self-deprecating humor to mm -hmm. self-deprecation to disarm that image of me as being so tough. Where I, I don't want to go, and I hope I don't, is a lot of self-apologizing. That drives me crazy. And I, I pretty much have decided that I roll with the sexism to the extent that I find it, most of it unwitting. I have never been groped. I have never been presented with, sleep with me or you don't get that deal. That, I've never been in that position. So I'm, not, I'm talking about your ordinary day-to-day, -day, pardon the noun, intercourse mm -hmm. in the office place. And, um, and I don't go around with a 10-pound chip on my shoulder. So I deal with that with humor. Women, anyone, whatever singles you out, as Kenji might say, whether you're gay or you're black or you're a woman or you're the one Episcopalian in a room full of Catholics, something that singles you out, you can either choose well, it's not binary again, you can choose where to draw the line, mm -hmm. what you're willing to tolerate or not. And young women on campus these days, I think, are making a very poor choice of drawing it way over to one end of the continuum. But that's their choice. My only point is, when you make choices, there are consequences. Nobody owes you a perfectly easy time of navigating those decisions that you're going to have to make every day. It's difficult sometimes not calling somebody on it. I, For instance, I was in a conversation with somebody the other day who referred to a problem as he, he said, the situation just keeps going pear-shaped. And it occurred to me that pear-shaped is how women are shaped. And I'm thinking, do I say, 
huh, that's, and I just let it go because, you know, someone's pointed this out to me. Do I say this? No, I'm not going to. I'm the, I'm the generation who doesn't say that. Do I never am heard I, that phrase? I know it's interesting, but somebody, someone much younger than me, pointed that out recently and said, "You know, I called my boss on that. He can't keep saying the a, a problem. I mean, the situation went pear shaped." And I thought, "Am I abdicating my responsibility here by not mentioning that the situation went pear shaped?" And then there are other times where. I do feel responsible if someone is sitting at an event and his hand is on my knee repeatedly and I keep putting his hand back on his own knee in the dark under the table um, and I finally lean over and say, sir, I think you're confused about whose knee this is. It's mine. I think that maybe there's some confusion because it's dark in here. I, physical touching crosses my line. It crossed. It crossed mine. It but I didn't do line. it. I didn't do it in a way that. I mean, he laughed. I laughed. You know, this is my knee. I think we're confused here. I could see how it could be confusing. We're both laughing. But I think about it from men's standpoint. I we, there was one firm. I will not go into names. There was a firm where a, a boss. By uh, the way, that's not something that a woman who's twenty years younger would necessarily joke about right right and she could very easily say to me how could you not just like stand up and say that's enough unhand me you cad that would be completely reasonable understanding that there are consequences and sometimes those are just worth it you walk out you say no you have to earn a little credibility first before you can do that i couple of stories and I was at a place where a senior man was forced out because of charges of sexual harassment he never slept with anyone he didn't do a quid pro quo he was just and I went back and thought about it and I I had been called into senior management to discuss the situation because I was potentially one of those women and I said I I don't think that this is sexual. Hmm. I think this guy is an asshole. Mm-hmm. It is not illegal to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. And he uses whatever weapons of put down he has at his disposal. They're different when he's talking to men than women. Mm-hmm. But I don't think this is sexual. He's just a jerk. Mm-hmm. And I, because, for example, if that fellow had said to me, oh, you look good today that is a lovely dress I would have been creeped out because it was a power play I don't I didn't think of it at the time but it would have creeped me out and yet there were other uh, senior managers at that place who I knew and worked with very closely and one day I was walking to a meeting that was not going to be much fun and he put his arm on my shoulder and said that suit is fantastic you look great. And I beamed. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, this is not, what guidance could I offer to men in these circumstances? Why is one offensive and one isn't? And I thought about it afterwards, and it was because the fellow had put his arm on my shoulder and paid me a very welcome compliment, was somebody who listened to my professional views in a meeting. Mm-hmm. He paid attention. If I said, you can't do that, he wouldn't do it. Right. And so it was fine. 
I didn't want it to be constrained discourse between the two of us. If you wanted to compliment me on that suit, which was, by the way, a fabulous suit from the Lowman's back room, <laughs> it was a great buy. That Deserving of a compliment. Deserving of a compliment. I'm glad he noticed. But I knew that he respected my professional input, and that was great. Right. Nuance. We're back to nuance. And I forgot mansplaining, and what was the other path we were going down? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This um, is what happens when two old birds get to talking. Now, mansplaining, which is a word I've just known in the last two years, because my daughters use it, that drives me crazy. I find myself mom-splaining. Mm. So Me I'm, too. I have got to be careful because I think that's as big a pain in the neck. I mean, my children can say, Mom, but my staff can't. So mom-splaining, I may, may have to stop that. My daughter says to me, Mom, that horse has been beaten. Mm. But I find it very annoying. And I had somebody mansplain in my office about two months ago. And he had been introduced to the foundation by somebody who I know and respect, a woman. And I was just not going to be rude. So for 45 minutes, I sat there and I got mansplained to about <laughs> a topic on which I have reasonable experience and knowledge. And I also even when I'm stupid and ignorant, would like people asking me for lots of money to pretend that I'm at least moderately educated and intelligent. I'm just asking for a little, a little deception. <laughs> Acknowledge me in yeah. some way. In some way that I'm really not hopeless. For my ego. Reasonable advice. So roll the clock forward. We didn't make a grant. And I was sitting with a male board member of this uh, organization at breakfast recently, and he alluded to the visit and wanted to know if we were inclined to hear more or pursue a possible relationship. And uh, this fellow who had been mansplaining to me has moved on to a different position. And I said to my breakfast companion, that was not going anywhere because there are probably 200 places doing the kind of work that place does. We're not going to fund all 200 of them. He mansplained his way through 45 minutes with me, and some of the way that we differentiate among 200 or 1,000 different organizations doing the same thing is on leadership. I can't work with somebody who does that. So that was a bad meeting. And the man at the breakfast table said, oh my God, but, but you, you misread it. That fellow is so passionate about his projects and he's so passionate about his institution and maybe he went on too long. And I said, no, passion I get. Mansplaining is not passion. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't work with people like that. Well, I have a feeling that you and I, today, we sat here and we just mom-splained ourselves because uh, we just meandered through a bunch of <laughs> a conversation that is uh, you and I talking, which is precisely what happens when you and I get together. But you and I both have daughters and um, stepdaughters, so this question is particularly relevant. 
I imagine. What's the soundest piece of advice you learned from someone who came before you, a parent, a mentor? This is a corny question, but then maybe we should translate it this way. What's a piece of advice that you would pass on then to the next generation? Wow, gosh, you warned me that you were going to ask me that, and I couldn't single one thing out. I made reasonable decisions at the time I made them. Would I make them differently now? Probably, in some cases. But you don't know that when you're in the thick of things. So I'm in this all-male environment on Wall Street, and it was very testosterone-laden. In fact, there's some fellow who was at Goldman Sachs and left, and I think Goldman Sachs, went off to get a PhD in psychology and came back to talk at Rockefeller some time ago about testosterone levels in traders. Why is the trading floor predominantly male? And uh, there turned out to be a lot of biology involved that was intriguing. I don't know if it's causal or associative, but it was it was intriguing. And uh, I just learned to rock and roll with that. But there did come a point when I had been made promises that if I took on compliance, which was a, a thankless, miserable job that had before my time, not been a position of great respect in these firms. Nobody from a Seven Sister or Ivy League college or a top law school wanted to do it, and I surely wasn't going to step down into that muck. But they made promises. I was going to get budget. I was going to get headcount. I was going to get promotions. And they were good on all of those over time, but... It came time for me to be promoted a second time, and the then general counsel said, I'm not putting you up. I'm only putting Mr. Up. Mm. I said, why? Well, I can only get one, and you have a working husband. He has a stay-at-home wife. He has four kids. You only have two. He really needs this. You don't. Oh. And... For the first time in my life, I did something about it. I told him that he'd promised me, and he gave me this half-assed answer, um, well, I'll do what I can. But it was clear that he was willing to throw me under the bus to get one promotion. Now, I had built a reputation for myself in the business units and in senior management in a variety of ways we don't have time for. So I had a lot of credibility outside the law, the law department. And I just went to them and I said, unacceptable. I am so angry I can't see straight. And if this doesn't happen and Mr. gets it and I don't, I will be looking for another job. And both of us got it. Okay. To this day, I'm still annoyed that I was put in the position where I had to get angry. Mm -hmm. I don't like getting angry. I get angry a lot, but I don't like it. And uh, so sometimes I did push back. But I had built a lot of credibility, I think, first of all, by doing good work and understanding the business perspective and also just having a sense of humor. They knew they could talk to me. I wasn't out to castrate them or Mm -hmm. do something terrible or sue them. 
of course, those lawsuits didn't even exist when I was back in that time. They were, people didn't sue much in those days. Pre-Title IX. So, prehistoric. <laughs> so, your advice that you'd pass on to the next generation, it sounds like that it would be just to make good decisions as they come. Yes, and, and here's my advice, and I've said this at, at Dean's panels here, lose the anger. Mm-hmm. I don't think most 22-year-olds, 24-year-olds have earned the right to a lot of anger. Some have, mm-hmm. God knows. There are situations where what you've been through, the anger is perfectly sensible. But most of us have had mainly first world problems. And to be angry before there's any cause just doesn't make any sense to me. Go out, learn stuff. That's what you're there to do. Build your knowledge base. It's all grist for the mill. Find interesting opportunities. Network if you want to. Don't network if you don't want to. Uh, But don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder until you have to. And then do something about it. Carve the chip into something interesting. I just recently coached somebody through a situation where she discovered that she was not paid what a number of her mayor colleagues were paid. And it was absolutely crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And I said... uh, don't go in there angry and don't go in there and cry, which is like I want to slip my wrist when I, when I cry in an office, but it's happened. <laughs> I said, find a way to let them know that you know mm-hmm. and that it has been registered and in a humorous way and then step back and see what happens. And that's what she's done, and I think... The wheels of justice grind slowly, but it's she's going to get some results out of that. But they do grind, don't they? They, they grind, but oh my gosh, it's never. I mean, in hindsight, you go, okay, it worked out, but in the middle, it's not pleasant. Mm-hmm. I became general counsel of AIG when it was still a great and wonderful company. It went for my fortieth birthday. And I think I was the only woman general counsel in the Fortune 10, certainly one of the few in the Fortune 50, and everyone was making a big deal out of it, which delighted me, of course. I was very happy to get the job. So among other things, I was invited to every glass ceiling panel in New York City. Of course. Of course. And I came to a dean's... uh, lunch. John Sexton had started them, and and I was invited to one of them. And I sat in a room of very young women, and this is where I started to focus on the fact that so many were angry already. So um, this was the kiss of death for my being invited to get glass ceiling panels. Somebody said, how did you break the glass ceiling at AIG? And I said, you know, I didn't break anything. A man my father's age opened the door and said, won't you come in? Mm-hmm. They did not like that answer. It was like being on the gong show. Wrong, not angry enough. But I did feel, I because there were so few senior women any place that I had been, my mentors had always been men. 
and they were invaluable to me, and I still remember them with great affection and respect. Um, and even though Hank Greenberg, you know, is is a, a difficult boss, he did invite me in, and he gave me lots of responsibility. And I was not only a woman, but I was his children's age. So I did not view this as an act of violence against some glass surface. So at the end of this lunch, a couple of the women came up to me to press the point, and they said, you know... Women at NYU Law School, if you look at the incoming class, our GPAs and our board scores are indistinguishable from the men. And yet, at the end of first year, there are many more men than women on Law Review. And something's happening, and it's the implication was, this is sexism. And I said, well, wait a second, guys. It's not like when I was in law school and you handwrote your exams so that somebody might know that you were a girl instead of a boy. You're all typing them. You're all graded on your social security numbers, which as far as I know, are sex blind. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless there's some cabal in the alt fact world, they don't know that you're a man or a woman. So you're being admitted on a neutral basis. You're being graded on a blind basis. It's not sexism. Something else is happening here. Could it be that women are self-selecting, that they don't want an academic career, or they don't want to stick around for three weeks afterwards to do the writing competition, or they don't care if they're at the best Wall Street firm or have the clerkship? Now, maybe there's a problem with some of that lack of ambition. I don't know. But what I'm suggesting here is there may be a lot of self-selection going on. Well, you're back to that word nuance. They did not like this at all. But I noticed it further on when I was in-house and in a position of responsibility, and I was looking for fourth or fifth year associates to fill some of the positions in my legal departments. Two-thirds of the applicants were women, about one-third were men, and the women were coming for affirmative reasons. I want to be in-house. I don't like the law firm. I have kids now. Very able resumes. And the men tended to be a mixed bag. Some of them had been passed over, and they had stuck it out much longer than the women, and they were, in many cases, not as impressive so in that sense, the self-selection was really leading me to hire more women than men because they were a more qualified pool. It was very interesting. I think men and women continue to make very different decisions, and I'm not going to judge it. It's not good. Mm -hmm. It's not bad. It is, and we have to be aware of it, and we have to think about it, but I don't know if we have to be angry about it. Well, we've talked about the importance of threading the needle. And I, I don't know. I don't know how to thread this needle. It's complicated. And you're talking about something that's really, really nuanced. Uh, my 30-year-old daughter has discovered that this is important where she's practicing law. She's in a very tough city and a very tough profession. And she's making compromises now that I never thought she would be able to. And I applaud it. I don't know if she feels at 2 o'clock in the morning that she's betraying some principle, but 
I think she's doing a good job for her clients. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky world we're living in. It is, but that's life. Grow up. It ain't easy. Should it be easier? I don't know. I'm living my reality. I'm not a philosopher. I am well aware that I'm setting you up for a joke here. Mm. Um, But I do like to end these conversations with a question, because I have this little streak of time travel fantasy. If you could appear before yourself as an entering law student, your current self, you know, if you just like flew through time and uh, appeared before your little uh, baby law student self, what would you what would your younger self think of you now? And don't get all smart-ass about your uh, gray hair. <laughs> oh, my. I surely wish I went to the gym more often. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was just a bundle of anxiety. Yeah. I wish I had relaxed and enjoyed it all more. But I don't think I was wired that way. And maybe you just have to be older in order to get there. I would have, somebody once said to me that one regrets the things one didn't do as opposed to the things one did do. I, I'm not sure that's true all the time, there, but it's, it's mostly true. It's mostly true. And I could have made braver choices. Mm. I wasn't brave. I was very conventional. And I'm making up for that in the world's worst way now. I am so unconventional, and I think it shocks people. But I just look back and think, wow, those were some very narrow choices you were making. Well, I, for one, I'm fully in your corner on those unconventional choices now. I'm rooting for you. Um, And I love that. The brash, the direct, the outrageous. The elastic waists. The elastic waist. I'm all for it. (laughs) I'm all for it. (laughs) I am so into comfort these days. So thank you. Thank you for being you. Jeannie, thank you for being you. You've made the last 20-odd years very, very enjoyable. Well, we're all, we're all about having some fun. And coffee. Somebody and coffee. give me coffee. There you go. Thanks, Florence. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership.